Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This is a very different podcast for the Australian Investors Podcast series. In this podcast, I interview Tanya de Jong AM. Tanya has a remarkable backstory, and so I'm thrilled to be able to chat with her. Her grandfather was a famous sculptor, her grandmother, the inventor of the foldable umbrella. Her mother was a quarterfinalist at Wimbledon, and Tanya herself won a scholarship to play tennis in the USA, qualified as a lawyer, is a soprano and opera singer, the founder of six businesses and three charities, and more recently, an advocate for mental health. This is a curious and fascinating conversation about the intersection of creativity and technology, how we as humans differentiate ourselves from technology, and what the future may hold for the human race as we race towards artificial intelligence. This is a short conversation, and I'm hoping to have Tanya back on the show in the future again. Without further ado, here's Tanya de Jong, founder of Creative Universe. Tanya, thanks for taking some time to have a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Owen. It's a pleasure being with you. I thought I'd start with, um, I watched your, your TED talk, and I'm wondering, how does singing change our brains? Can you depart some wisdom for us because I felt better when I was listening to music today yeah and I was thinking is there a connection here absolutely yeah look you know in that talk how singing together changes your brain basically I talk about the incredible neuroscience of singing where the right temporal lobe of your brain fires up releasing a whole range of different neurotransmitters like oxytocin making us feel smarter healthier happier and more creative and particularly when we sing with others it's really good because we're, we're breathing together, our hearts start to beat together, it improves our memory language and concentration. And the other wonderful thing about singing with others is it takes us more into the right side of our brain. So that's really like our human battery charger. That is the creative, intuitive side of our brains. And that connects us to one another and all that is. And um, unfortunately, we spend majority of our time in the left side of our brains, which is very rational, analytical, logical, you know, usually being overwhelmed by way too much information and data. And the left side of our brain separates us. It keeps us apart from others. And, you know, it's estimated that we spend about 85% of the time in the left side of our brains being overwhelmed by so much information. So it's not really any wonder that we're becoming more and more burnt out and depressed and stressed and anxious, Um, especially at the moment, you know, we're also coupled that with loneliness and social isolation because of lockdowns and so on. And so what happens is people are spending more and more time in, in that part, not really feeling connected to anything. And really our lack of connection is what mostly leads to mental illness. So There's a lot of wonderful authors, including Johan Hari, who wrote the book Lost Connections, 
where he talks about seven different types of disconnection that can lead to depression. And that can be lack of connection to yourself, to others, to your community, to your work, to your planet. And there's two others. I can't even remember what they are right now, but it's a fantastic book. And, you know, a lot of people think that it's around brain chemistry that actually creates depression and other mental illnesses. But quite often it's just simply about lack of connection. And of course, when you lack that connection, and particularly if you're suffering some kind of trauma or you've suffered some kind of trauma or traumas in your life, it's much, much harder to connect into them and accept them um, if you're not connected to yourself, you know, and the planet and, you know, and so on. So um, what we're seeing now is this incredible mental health emergency, you know, that is just erupting and increasing by the day um, with, you know, an increasing amount of people who are suffering, you know, suicide, um, you know, on the increase, we're seeing, you know, children as young as four being prescribed antidepressants. Um, we're seeing one in four older adults, even pre-COVID with antidepressant use. And it's estimated by some mental health experts now that as many as one in three of us could be suffering with a mental illness. I mean, even the most balanced and resilient people that I know are suffering some levels of stress and anxiety right now with what is happening in the world. So, you know, really the elephant in the room is that um, we don't have the innovation in treatment to get the majority of patients well. So there has been no innovation in treatment for mental illness for the best part of 50 years, um, which, is, which is really tragic. So in the case of depression, only about 35% maximum of patients go into remission from existing treatments and or psychotherapy and in the case of post-traumatic stress disorder as few as five percent of patients go into remission from existing treatments so the majority of patients are not getting well either they're staying stuck in the system and you know clogging up the books of psychologists and psychiatrists who have wait lists of one to two years in many cases the really good ones certainly do um, or they're dropping out of the system and of course going down for many the slippery slope of social isolation and loneliness and, and not feeling supported and certainly not being well, not able to work, not being able to have high functioning relationships. And, you know, it's everyone's birthright in any community to be able to live a happy and fulfilling and healthy life and have access to the best tools that are available to them. And, um, you know, psychedelic assisted therapies in over 160 current and recent trials have had remission rates of 60 to 80%, you know, um, which has led to the breakthrough therapy status that both MDMA and psilocybin assisted therapy now have to treat patients um, who have treatment resistant depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and also addictions. And we're now starting to see psychedelic-assisted therapies being trialled also for a range of other addictions, um, obsessive-compulsive disorder, eating disorders like anorexia, dementia, uh, stroke, Parkinson's, even fibromyalgia, cluster headaches. So these medicines and these treatments, and it's very important to say psychedelic-assisted therapy means the psychedelic, that is the medicine, the psychedelic medicine, mm. with a short course of psychotherapy. So just the medicine on its own in general is not going to get people well. 
it's the combination of the medicine that opens the patient up to working with a psychotherapist and really fast tracking their therapeutic recovery, I guess, and getting them well. I'm going to talk more about mind medicine in just a moment and um, basically everything you're working on today, which is a lot. Um, but maybe for those people who aren't aware of who you are and what you've done, your, your CV and everything that you've accomplished is incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and kind of, I know that the, um, your grandmother, I believe it was, invented the foldable umbrella. Um, you, you studied law. You went on to do a scholarship in the USA for tennis. Well, that's true. And I forgot about all that. Soprano, like, <laughs> t tell us a little bit about Tanya. Yeah, so, you know, I'm the daughter and granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. So, you know, most of my relatives were killed in the Holocaust. And my grandmother in 1929 did invent the first foldable umbrella in Vienna, which was manufactured there for 10 years. Um, then her and my grandfather and my mum, who was three months old at the time, um, miraculously escaped Vienna just before the Nazis really came and took away most of the rest of the family. And so then she was forced to sell her patent to the German authorities. Sorry, her, her royalties. But we, she still has, she's still named as the patent holder. Um, it's just that the royalties were, were reassigned because then they didn't know where the family was going to go anyway. They ended up, you know, in Australia, in a, you know, internment camp and eventually were allowed back out into society in, in the 1940s and rebuilt their lives really from scratch with nothing. Um, they'd lost, you know, properties and a lot of stuff. But they're resilient people and they managed to restart their lives as artists. My grandfather's a very famous sculptor. Anyway, um, my mother was also, yes, she was a tennis champion and she won the Dutch Open and got to the quarterfinals at Wimbledon and so on. And um, she and uh, my dad met in Israel in 1962. You know, I was born in the Netherlands. My dad is Dutch. He was also hidden away during, you know, during the Nazi regime and miraculously also survived. So. By any rights, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, you know, I've been in Melbourne most of my life. I was born in the Netherlands, but came here at one. Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur and social entrepreneur. So I've set up six businesses and three charities. I mean, in sort of my adult life, even be like before I was 18, I'd set up quite a lot of entrepreneurial ventures at a tennis Can you give us an example? Sorry. Yeah, so I had a tennis coaching business, um, a singing teaching business, even sort of in my like early 20s and I also like even when I was young I think between the age of about five and 15 you know I used to have like a gemstone tumbling business and make gemstone jewelry which I sold out in front of my parents house and um, you know my brother and I used to run magic shows and charge admission for those and so you know I think I am a, a bit of a born entrepreneur um, and you know I'm a really strong believer that you know we can all be creative entrepreneurs and I think it's going to be really important going forwards because you know it's estimated that a huge percentage of middle class jobs are going to become redundant I mean even before this pandemic it was estimated that over 60 percent of current middle class jobs would become redundant in the next decade and this was probably about three or four years ago but I think now what we're seeing is you know increased automation and digitization 
and robotics and you know artificial intelligence and so on and i think that we're going to see um you know and we have seen more and more people either leaving the workforce um or not participating in it as much and of course a lot of businesses you know will find every shortcut to automate um and save costs and you know and, and human resources takes a lot of time and energy um, because you know managing people is hard um, so and costly so I think what we're really seeing is we're seeing this massive increase um, in a population I guess that is going to need to find different ways of being citizens active citizens and entrepreneurs and you know I do a lot of speaking a lot of keynotes both for large corporations and government and academia as well. But I also do some keynotes for, you know, emerging entrepreneurs and university students and sometimes schools as well. And I really encourage young people to really unleash their creative and entrepreneurial flair um, and just learn what it's like. You know, I really love those lemonade stands when you see little kids selling lemonade in your neighborhood or whatever. I think, how cute. You know, I always, I don't like, I don't, have any sugar but I always just give them a little donation say keep going you want to be an entrepreneur one day you know <laughs> I see that Tanya I get to interview some fantastic leaders and entrepreneurs in this series and I see that kind of the entrepreneurialism thread through lifetimes so it starts you know typically the, the person that starts this multi-million dollar business or a charity or whatever isn't that's not the first thing that they've done and so I see that too. In a previous update, I think you said something to the effect, and I've got the quote here. You said a lot of organizations and human beings are struggling to keep pace with innovation. And then you asked another question. You said, is technology making us more or less social? I'm just wondering if you can just kind of expound on that just for a moment. Yeah, well, you know, technology has always had its upside and its downside, and it's a double-edged sword. And I think we're really seeing that now where, you know, media can be used for, for good or for harm. And um, I guess what I mean by that and what I meant before this pandemic was that, you know, we talk more about our boxes and screens than we do to one another. And it becomes fundamentally important to nurture the attributes of human beings that set us apart from machines. Love, compassion, empathy, creativity, courage, you know, all these sorts of attributes that we have that machines don't have. But sadly, you know, when people are very isolated, um, they tend to resort to social media and they use that as their main form of media and they start to really become like echo chambers so that everything that they're seeing and reading is really being fed to them through the algorithms, which we know are very powerful. And so people don't see alternate views and they don't question the narrative that's coming through to them. And I think that's been one of the really most dangerous things about this pandemic is that what we're seeing is one particular narrative, but there's actually many, many views. There's many viewpoints of many leading and global experts around everything to do with the management of the pandemic. Um, and many of those are being censored. And I think that's when we start to see that technology can be a real double-edged sword where it can be used to to brainwash people and to sway them to and and to also 
to suppress certain important information that people should be made aware of, where they can make their own decisions. And I think that is a real problem of technology because sometimes we read sources of information that are, you know, there's a lot of fake news out there, for example. And it's just hard to work out what is real and what's not real. <laughs> and so I think the more that people just talk to their boxes and screens, the less discerning they often are because there's no one really challenging them. They're, they're not really being taken out of their comfort zone. They're just sitting, you know, at home looking at a screen. And whereas when you connect with other people in what I like to call positive human collisions, by that I mean our greatest gains of hum as human beings are when we connect with people who are really different from us and take us out of our comfort zone and challenge our beliefs and perceptions. But we, it, it, as human beings, we tend to be very tribal and we tend to hang out with people who are just like us, think like us, you know, mm. similar backgrounds, educations, financial circumstances and so on, dress like us and so on. Uh, but Steve Jobs famously said, you know, your greatest creativity occurs when you connect the dots differently. So, you know, you can only really do that if you have a really rich, diverse toolbox of life experiences. The only way you really get that is by hanging out with people who are different from you. So diversity is really, really important that you have a diverse group of people around you who don't always agree with you. And that can feel really uncomfortable, but that's where your greatest growth really is as a human being and as a business leader and entrepreneur is really to surround yourself with people who are really different from you on a regular basis. And that way you can continue to grow and you can have a more open, curious mindset. And I would say that one of the, the great attributes that my grandmother definitely passed down to me is curiosity. Uh, you know, she was deeply curious, you know, she had this big tall umbrella and she often used to leave it behind in the cloakrooms and art galleries and so on in Vienna. And one day she said to my grandfather, you know, imagine if someone was to invent a little umbrella that went in a handbag. And then she set about collecting the spokes of the old lampshades and, um, you know, trying and failing. Again, you know, and this is another real attribute of any great innovator or entrepreneur is that you fail fast and you try again. And I like to think of the word fail as first attempt in learning, you know, because, you know, and I have all my grandmother's working notes, you know, I tried this today, it didn't work, tomorrow I'm going to try this and so on. And this went on for months, like she didn't just invent that overnight. I mean, it took her many months of iterating on her idea to finally come up with that incredible foldable umbrella, which was patented the flirt, by the way. I should say that because it's such a cute name for a little umbrella. You know, the idea that you flirt under an umbrella. You know. mm. I'd say, you know, something, Tanya, that I've noticed with people that have even just studied law, not necessarily practiced law, is um, they have a, a superior ability to uh, understand counterpoints to whatever their perspective is. So <clears throat> one of the, I guess, the, the assets of being a lawyer is that you want to understand your opponent's argument as well as you understand your own. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. And I think when it comes to social circles, we often forget that because we curate them to be just circles of positivity and they get narrower and narrower as time goes on and we fail to, into, like, to bring that in. And that's why so, empathy is so important. I mean, you know, one of the, the great things, of, you know, 
of course I'm a performer as well, a, a, you know, an opera singer and music theatre singer and I write a lot of my own music as well now and, and so on. I do heaps of speeches as well and I'm constantly thinking, well, what is the audience feeling? You know, how can I best connect with my audience and how can I tune into them? And, you know, the audience sentiment changes all the time and we see that, you know, nothing is ever static. So we're seeing this rapidly changing world. We're seeing rapidly changing views on all sorts of different things. And I just think it's really important for people to get out of their echo chambers, their bubbles, and start to really build those bridges of connection between diverse people. And I've done that very deliberately with many of my projects, Creativity Australia, my second charity, which brings together haves and have-nots in choirs of social inclusion, um, with The Song Room, my first charity, you know, bringing creativity and arts learning to disadvantaged students in schools who would normally not have those sorts of experiences. And that has improved their learning outcomes. So, you know, we mustn't forget the role of the arts and creativity as well to help us unlock more of our own creativity and more of our skills. Um, you know, there's something, you know, people often say, oh, you know, what have you got to but do we, how is it that you know you're an opera singer and how come you run all these businesses well actually I think that my being a, a creative performer has actually helped me to set up my businesses and that the skills that I've learned from being a performer have been very transferable um, into the entrepreneurial and and indeed the charitable space as well do you think that comes from just where does do you think that comes from like just giving it a go and yeah putting yourself out there is that yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, because when I set up my group Potpourri, which is like 30 years ago, it's hard to believe. But, um, you know, there wasn't, like, we didn't have all this access to the internet. So we were touring around different places. And I'd literally try and think, well, how can I get us more gigs? How can I get us out there? And I'd literally look up the local phone book. There were phone books back then. And, um, and I'd find you know, event organisers or other people and I'd contact them and I'd see if they were interested in coming to watch us so that they might book us in the future. And then I'd start to write hundreds of letters. And then, of course, finally, emails emerged. And um, thank God, because, you know, I was <laughs> handwriting letters, like, for many years. And it was really just because we had to find more work. You know, um, what's that saying? Invention is is the mother of or father of, you know, sorry, necessity is the mother of invention, you know. And so it was like, well, if we're going to get gigs, we're going to have to find gigs and we're going to have to make connections. And so I just really just literally pounded the pavement, <laughs> well, the phone book, whatever it was that I could do to try and build work up for my group. In fact, it got to the stage, you know, through a large part of the time that my group still performs, but, we, you know, there was a time there where we were travelling around the world. We were doing 130 performances a year, like, you know, a really successful strategy in the end. But it was exhausting. It was really exhausting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think you just get into a space where you go, well, I mean, you know, no, most successful businesses and successful people have not, they appear to have, been very lucky but most of them have worked incredibly hard and been very persistent and and just not given up on their dreams uh, and if you look at it there's very few that haven't worked incredibly hard to achieve success somewhere along the way yeah that's a saying you don't fall your way to the top um, so 
It's it's interesting. Um, I know we've got we're pushed for time, so there's maybe just two more questions I want to ask you. The first is, can you just relive the story of how um, Mind Medicine Australia came to be? And I think maybe maybe your story, but also maybe you can just set the scene a little bit for basically what happened up until the 1970s and then kind of restarting that. Yeah, sure. So basically, yeah. So firstly, I guess I want to just say to people, you know, I've always been pretty anti-drugs and I really didn't even know what psychedelics were. And it's only, you know, <laughs> through complete coincidence that, that you know, I co-founded My Medicine Australia with my husband, Peter Hunt, and, um, and now I'm the executive director of Mind Medicine Australia, and we started in early 2019. And and I'll come back to your, your question on the war on drugs in a moment, but effectively, um, about five and a half years ago, I read a blog of Tim Ferriss, whose blog I get, and he was saying he was donating 100,000 US dollars to Imperial College for research in psilocybin-assisted therapy to treat depression. I had no idea what psilocybin was. I just clicked on the article out of curiosity. It was an article in the New Yorker magazine about um, a trial at New York University for patients with end-of-life stress and anxiety caused by a terminal diagnosis of cancer. And one of the patients that was profiled in this article was a Jewish man who has who had experienced intergenerational trauma due to the Holocaust and had got rid of all of that through his experiences with psilocybin. And um, so this just rang a bell for me. I just thought, wow, this is this is incredible because though I don't suffer from a mental illness, I don't have depression, I don't have trauma, I've always been aware that I could never be in a room, you know, where anything to do with the Holocaust came on television or the radio or anything, I literally would have to leave the room and I wasn't there, right? So this obviously came through my parents and my grandparents and, and I've always been very curious about hacking myself, my brain, my body, my spirit. So I've tried everything, you know, mantra, tantra, tantra psychotherapy, myotherapy, cryotherapy, you know, meditation, yoga, yeah, everything you could imagine. Um, but I've never done any drugs. So I've never, you know, I've never got drunk. Um, I've never smoked any any drugs or anything like that. Um, I don't even drink coffee. So the thought of actually losing control and trying something like this was frightening to me. But anyway, nevertheless, I, I approached Imperial College, tried to get Peter and I into a healthy person's trial and there weren't any going on at the time. So they, they eventually introduced us to a guide in the Netherlands and these treatments are, are legal in the Netherlands as they are in a number of countries. You know, um, these medicines have actually been with us since the beginning of human civilization. They're in the, you know, ancient Greek and Roman archeology, span you can see the mushrooms and things there. Um, you know, the Greeks famously drank kaikion um, you know, to get them into states of ecstasy in, in many indigenous cultures and religious uh, communities, these medicines, mind-altering substances, have been used from the beginning to help people to heal and to raise consciousness and also increase creativity. I mean, famously, of course, many of the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley microdose. Mm. Yeah. And... Um, it said that if a company who's not microdosing versus a startup that is, um, are not going to succeed versus the ones that are. <laughs> um, but anyway, so you know, I but I really wasn't 
that aware of all of this. And so we eventually flew to Europe. We, we met this Dutch guide. We went through this, you know, significant dose of psilocybin preceded by Syrian Rue, which is a MOI inhibitor. And we were transported into multiple dimensions, unbelievably connected to everything. Um, you know, history. Um, I mean, the visions that I saw were just extraordinary, just extraordinary. And the sense of connection and oneness was so deeply profound. I mean, this was probably the most, you know, certainly most people describe these sessions when they're done in an intentional way as one of the top five most meaningful experiences in their lives. Hmm. And whoever says that about a medicine, right? Yeah. So, but, you know, for me, I guess it was probably in the top one or two. And, um, and the same for my husband. And it was so profound. And we came out of the experience and nothing was ever the same again. You know, I've never seen anything in nature the same again. Every leaf, plant, flower, animal, raindrop, everything. You, you just realise the fractillian nature of, of everything on this planet. And you also just realise how, how blessed you are to have a human existence. Really, it's very profound. And the connection to self, to others, to planet is really, really a gift of these medicines. And that's what provides a window for skilled therapists to work with the patient to get them well after two to three treatments with a short course of psychotherapy. You compare that against a lifetime of mental illness sentence for most people. You know, how could we deny that to anyone given the increasing suffering and suicides in our community? And so we started doing an enormous amount of research. We met a lot of the researchers. We, you know, watched videos, we read every book. We went to conferences and events around the world. And then we realized that Australia really didn't have an ecosystem to make sure that these medicines could become available through the medical system to patients who are suffering with treatment resistant conditions in Australia, wherever they were based, no matter what their financial circumstances, so that they would become accessible and available and a first line treatment option. And so we really started to, at that point, think, okay, we've got to start a charity. And we'd, we'd already started, so Peter and I had already started between us four charities. So this is our fifth charity. And we had vowed that we were not going to start any more charities. I mean, before we had this psilocybin experience, there was no way. We were divesting our portfolios. Um, you know, we had so much on and, and, you know, charities take an enormous amount of commitment, as I'm sure you would appreciate. And so anyway, we set about um, setting up the charity, we launched in early 2019, and we have core, four uh, core strategic pillars, education and awareness. So, you know, doing podcasts like this, we run a lot of webinars, free webinars. We have an enormous global summit in November with all the leading researchers and doctors from around the world. I mean, people should definitely sign up and I can give you MMA 2021. It's a special discount code to get um, discounts off our summit packages, which we'll share with you after this as well with the notes. Um, we started chapters all over Australia and New Zealand to build grassroots awareness and educate local communities and grow this movement. We started the first certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies to train psychiatrists, doctors, therapists, psychologists, social workers, nurses, paramedics. Um, it's the first one in the Southern Hemisphere with a world-class faculty. 
we're developing a centre of excellence in partnership with some unis and we're working with the TGA on rescheduling of the medicines and setting up ethical and legal frameworks, rolling out of clinics, manufacturing of the medicines. I mean, we're really just creating the ecosystem here in Australia so that we can be at least at the same place as the rest of the world in this field. And I think what's important to say, because you run you know, an investment um, podcast is that the interest in this space is through the roof from investors. I mean, we are approached by investors well, multiple times per day. Um, and we have a lot of investors who are donating to us because we're a charity as well, who want to be close to the action and learn more from us about, you know, what are the best organisations in the world to invest in? Because there is a lot of hot air in this space at the moment. The medicines and treatments are extremely prospective and they will become, you know, they, they are, will be considered well, they are considered the next big thing in psychiatry and they were back in the 1960s and 50s as you alluded to earlier but what happened is over 50,000 patients took part in treatments in medically controlled environments back then and they were healed of multiple conditions they were also used even MDMA assisted therapy was used for um, relationship counseling as well very successfully and then in 1970 Nixon had his war on drugs and effectively criminalise the use of all psychedelics. And that effectively stopped all research. Now, this was not a scientific decision at all. Like most of these sorts of decisions, they're, they're political decisions. And his advisors acknowledge that they lied about the drugs. Mm. Professor David Nutt, who's from Imperial College and one of our ambassadors, describes it as the worst example of censorship of medicine and science in the history of humanity. And if you think about it, we have this lost 50 years. And we're now at a stage where our human civilization is seriously compromised for many, many reasons. And if you think about the last 50 years, you know, what might've happened had we have continued to use these medicines to heal many people, had they've continued to be researched, you know, we might be in a very different position now, but it is what it is. And now we're sort of back just at, or just above the level of research and where we were back in 1970 and now, we're starting to see some doctors and psychiatrists in Australia get what are called special access scheme approvals to treat patients on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, though the state governments are still uh, not recognising these substances as medicines, so that's why the rescheduling is so important. Um, and we're also seeing a lot more trials and research emerging in Australia as well, which is great to see. Um, and yeah, you know, little by little, these medicines are going to become available. And really they're, they're more prospective than even medicinal cannabis because they can treat a lot of conditions. And unlike medicinal cannabis, a patient doesn't have to keep using them. Um, you know, there's two or three medicinal sessions in a clinical environment. You don't get to take the medicine home, but under supervision of trained therapists. And, you know, we're training some extraordinary therapists around Australia. And by the end of Next year, we'll have trained a few hundred of those. We're already through a hundred so far. And we're seeing some of the, the most senior, you know, therapists in Australia wanting to add psychedelic assisted therapies and adjunct to their other skills, because I think they all recognize and they all acknowledge that they don't have the tools to get people well and out of the system. They've got a lot of blunt instruments at the moment at best. Mm. 
Well, Tanya, we'll put links in the show notes to everything you just mentioned, including Mind Medicine Australia and plenty of your other charities. I, I think in terms of initiatives, I think the song room is just such a fantastic thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, just so many great things that you have accomplished and achieved. Uh, in, in, you would say such a short period of time, you fit so much in. So my last question before we leave you is just, as you look back on what you've done so far, what, what's something that if I ask you this question, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say, what are you most proud of? Wow. Um, you know, look, I, I think I'm, I'm most proud of some of the, the relationships that I, that I have. Um, you know, with people that certainly, I mean, my relationship with my husband is, is wonderful. And I'm so lucky that, that we met um, and he's, you know, he was a leading investment banker and, and he's like a philanthropist and social entrepreneur, just an inspirational person. My family, you know, and, and my friends and, and particularly some of the people I've worked with in a number of the charities um, and also just a number of the businesses that I've worked with have been extraordinary. So I'm really proud because, you know, when you are an entrepreneur and you're going really fast and you're trying to build stuff, you know, I could be accused of, you know, going too fast sometimes and not keeping people running along with me. So, you know, I, I think I acknowledge all the people that have have run along and, and tried to keep up and, um, you know, and I'm just really proud of the fact that I've been able to create um, charities that have really affected the lives of really millions of people and children and as well and um, you know and that my family which went through so much trauma and so much hardship um, that you know we could we could be strong enough <clears throat> to start again um, and my parents in particular I mean like I didn't do all of that. That's totally them. Like, you know, I am the product of an incredible family. And I'm just very fortunate that a lot of really good values were instilled in me that I have a really, like I have a small family because we lost most of our relatives, but we're very close. And um, I'm grateful for that. And I'm proud of that. And yeah. Well, from where I sit, I think you're doing everyone proud. So thank you, Tanya, for taking some time to join us on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Owen.